Okay, everyone. <clears throat> Good morning. Good to see you all. <clears throat> if you have a Bible, could you please go and turn to Leviticus chapter 21. Leviticus chapter 21. We're going uh, back there. So, we are in our sermon series, Into His Presence, looking at the book of Leviticus. We are almost at the end. We've got this week, uh, next week's Mother's Day, then we've got two more Sundays, and then we are done with the series, and then we will begin our Easter sermon series, starting at Easter Sunday, and then it will roll out the back of that. And I said last week, we're going to be looking at uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, which is the longest treatment of the resurrection of Jesus uh, in, our new, in our Bibles um, and so we'll be taking some time to go through that. So that's what's coming up. Now, back to this, um, into his presence, looking at the book of Leviticus. We've seen thus far that um, the purpose of the book, what it's trying to do is answer this great question of how does sinful man come into the presence of a holy God? Because God is holy, which means he is set apart. He is other. He is different from us. He is complete purity uh, and light. And man, by contrast, is the opposite. We are sinful, we are polluted, we are corrupted, we fall short of God's standards in every way, we've rebelled against him, uh, and so the two don't mix, they are incompatible. Yet God has called man into his presence to be with him, and the question is, well, how does that work? And we've looked uh, through um, the book of Leviticus of how that's happened and we kind of got halfway through it and then we have to answer ourselves the question of then well as a result of man being in God's presence in the presence of a holy God how do they live in light of that and if we've looked at the overall structure of the book of Leviticus and it falls neatly into two halves and kind of a, a parallel structure and we've done the first half of the book running down to the day of atonement which is all about man coming into God's presence if you've missed any of that you can catch up online all the sermons are there it's worth having a listen having a read through and then out the back of that the second half of the book is looking at the idea of cave okay, man is in God's presence and there are the people of God which was what Israel was in the bit we're reading is how do they live in light of that and last week we looked at that first section about daily holiness. How do the people of God respond to the fact that God is holy and they have called to be holy as well and how we live our lives. And now what we're going to be looking at today is that section there which is the qualifications um, of the priests. And so we looked at the first, the ordination of the priesthood in the first bit where the priests were appointed to minister the sacrifice before God and now actually it comes back to that and we're going to look at what it means for the priests to be holy and to live in the presence of God. And there's a couple of verses that we looked at that kind of sums this sort of part of the Leviticus up. Uh, there's the Lord says, you are to be holy because I am holy. So because God is holy, his people are to be holy. And then out of that, we are to love our neighbors as ourselves. And Israel as God's people, they had been redeemed by God. They had been rescued by God. They had been taken out of Egypt uh, where they were slaves. They have been brought out. They're in the wilderness. They're heading towards a promised land. And because of that, God says, because I've redeemed you uh, and made you holy, you are my people, you are now to live a certain way in response to what God had done and who God's, what God was. And we are going to focus our, on the priesthood for these couple of chapters as we look. And the priests, if we remember, they were the spiritual leaders of the people. They were the ones who set the spiritual standard 
for God's people because they were the ones who were responsible for worship. They were the ones who were responsible for the sacrifices at the tabernacle. And the image I always find helpful in this is the image of the thermostat. Now, I don't know if you've got a thermostat in your home. This is a bit of an old school one now. They're a bit like flash now with buttons and digital displays. And, but when I think of a thermostat, I always think of the, the old dial. And what happened when you turned the dial? What were you waiting for? The click, click. And the thermostat was great because what you did was you set the thermostat for what you wanted the temperature in the house to be. Were there ever, you ever lived in a house where there were battles over the thermostat? Sometimes worse than battles we read about in the newspapers, like where it should be, and people would move it up, and someone would come and move it down. It's too hot, it's too cold, well, who's going to pay for it? Well, the thermostats are great, but they, they set the temperature. So you put the thermostat at the temperature of the house you wanted it. So if it was too cold, you turn it up. And if it was too hot, you turned it down. And what happened is then the heating system would respond accordingly. So if you wanted to make the, the place hotter, you would turn it up, a couple of degrees, a couple more degrees, and then you would wait for the heating system to kick in, and what would happen to the overall temperature of the house? It would rise to meet where you set the thermostat. Now, the spiritual leaders, the priests, they set the spiritual tone, the spiritual thermostat of the people of God. So wherever they were at spiritually, the rest of the nation would then rise accordingly. So if they were up at a certain level, the rest of the nation could rise up behind them. If they won and they were failing and not doing their job, the rest of the spiritual nation would eventually fall into decline. And we see that throughout the Bible. When God's leaders, who are spiritually attuned to God and going after God, the nation is doing well and, and prospering and they're worshiping the Lord. But when the leaders fail, when their temperature is turned down, the whole nation suffers as a result. And there is a standard for spiritual leadership. We've already seen that in the previous section of Leviticus where we looked at the priesthood when Aaron and his sons were appointed to minister before the Lord. We have that shocking incident, I think it's chapter 10, where what happens to Nadab and Abihu? They're killed because they are complacent in their ministry before the Lord and they go into um, God's presence. It says they offered unauthorized fire, uh, which we had a look at what that could mean. And as a result, the presence of God killed them. And actually, there was a, there's a sign there. You don't get to be complacent before the Lord in your standards. And the priests themselves, it says um, at the opening of these um, verses we're going to look at today, it says they were not to profane the name of the Lord. And to profane was, means to pollute or to defile the name of God. It is to make what is holy unholy. It is to treat it with disrespect. And that is what the priests were absolutely not to do. And we looked at the section that Matt looked at when it talked about clean and unclean and how you could become one or the other and how to change it. And then we looked at common and holy, which was another description. And the priests were to treat holy what was holy. And so the, the responsibility for them to lead the people was huge. So a big idea as we get into these uh, verses is this. Spiritual leadership demands the highest standards, whether in the home, workplace, or church. Spiritual leadership demands the highest standards, whether in the home, workplace, or church. So we begin these uh, two chapters, chapter 21, chapter 22, if you're there, and it says, the Lord spoke to Moses. 
So this comes up throughout Leviticus, and it's just a constant reminder that what we're reading is not man's suggestions, but divine commands. This is what the Lord says you will do, and the people of God are to respond. And we've got two things we're going to look at. We're going to look at the priest's personal life, and then the priest's ministry. So chapter 21, the priest's personal life. Now, there are four areas here. Uh, there's the priests and the dead, the priest's wife, the high priest specifically, and then the priest's body, and we'll go through each section. So the first six verses are regulations to do with the dead, and it, it, it revolves around what uh, one of the priests can do in coming into contact with a corpse, a dead body. And this was big because the dead, if contact with the dead made you unclean. We saw that when we looked at um, the ritual purity section. And touching a dead body could make you unclean for seven days and there were things you had to go through. But the priests, as ministers before the Lord, um, had restrictions on that to make sure they could carry on uh, con- completing their ministry. They had to stay away from dead bodies. There were a few exceptions of close relatives, their mum, their dad, their son, their daughter, or um, uh, their brother or an unmarried sister. They were allowed to come into contact with those bodies, but everything else was restricted. And they lived in a time when death was very much more close and personal. They didn't have hospitals or places to go. 21st century, we do everything we can to remove death from us. We put people in care homes, we put them in hospitals, so day to day we don't have to deal with it. But back then, everyone had been living together, the camps, death would have been very personal, very upfront, and the, keys, the priest had to take extra care not to, be, uh, to come into contact with dead bodies. Because one, that would make them unclean, so they couldn't uh, minister at the tabernacle, they couldn't fulfill their duties, which was important. But also at that time in the ancient Near East, the kind of... The cult around the dead was a big thing. It even carries forward into the times of Jesus. They had professional mourners, and there was a whole big thing of wailing, and there were pagan uh, rituals and cults that tried to contact the dead, and there was cutting the body and all sorts of things around it. So the priests, who were God's holy kind of set-apart leaders for his people in the terms of the spiritual realm, they had to just make sure they were as far away from that as possible. So there are restrictions in place so that they don't go near it, so they don't come near it, that they don't, they're never associated with that kind of lifestyle. There's no accusation could be brought against them that they are um, sharing in those pagan rituals because they are to minister to the Lord and they're to share in God's offering and he is holy and the offering is holy and they've been set apart so they're holy and so they are to do everything they can to live a holy life. And even when it comes to the priest's family, particularly his wife, it says priests are forbidden from marrying prostitutes and divorcees, although they could marry widows. And what's this about? It doesn't give a particular reason in the text, but commentators can speculate. And there's a couple of reasons uh, for this one. One of them is over paternity of children. Because the priests were Aaron, who was the brother of Moses. He was the first high priest. And all high priests would come from his line. So his son and the first one's son all the way down. And the priests were then his sons as well, and their sons would then form the priesthood. And that was so important that there could be no question that the ones who were the priests were descendants of Aaron, physical descendants of Aaron. And so when it came to marriage, that was very important that the paternity of the children could be accounted for. And so actually there were restrictions put on their marriage choice. Also in the, the reference to um, prostitutes, actually they were often associated with pagan religions. They were cult prostitutes. That was just a big thing. And so there was a, a question of character as well. Actually, the, if the priest is going to be set apart and live a life of holiness and integrity, so must his wife and subsequently their family. 
It's not just one person's job, actually, it's a wider issue. And so there must be um, very uh, restrictions on the priest there. And then it talks about, in verses 10 to 15, the high priest in particular, who was Aaron. He was the first high priest. He had even higher standards put on him. The priesthood had standards as a general thing, but as the one high priest, he was the one who had to wear the special garments that were made. We looked at the pictures of that. He had the special anointing oil put on his head. He wore the turban that said... On, even on the front of it, holy to the Lord. And so he, he had an extra standard put on him. And so he could only marry a virgin, it said. He could not, his restrictions on coming into the contact with the dead were even stricter. He couldn't even go um, dead, near dead parents. He had to stay away from that, so he remained clean, so he could perform his, his um, uh, role at the tabernacle. Uh, and that's it. And again, um, his wife, in terms of the choice of the wife, there was again a question of paternity because the high priest could only be from his line. So it had to be his son and his son and his son and so on and so forth. And so the restrictions for being the high priest were great because of his office and what he did. And then finally, in verses 16 to 24 of that chapter, it talks about the priest's physical body. And these are linked directly to uh, the restrictions for the animals that were brought for sacrifice. When we looked at the sacrificial system in the first seven verses, when um, the worshippers brought an animal for sacrifice, whether it was for the burnt offering or the guilt offering or whatever... There was restrictions that the animal had to be without blemish. It had to be without spot. You couldn't bring your dodgy, sick animal and put it to sacrifice. It will get rid of that one because he's, he's no use to the herd. We'll get rid of the weak. He said, no, you had to bring the best. You had to bring the best to God. And in the same way that the offering was holy and set apart, so the priests themselves had to be holy. If they were going to offer perfect, inverted common sacrifice physically for the animal, they too had to be the same way. And so there are restrictions which could be from birth or from injury of life or from disease they've caught. And if anything happened to them, they would then be restricted from service as a priest. doesn't mean they'll be restricted from the care. They'd still be part of the priesthood. They could still um, receive the donations and the food from the sacrifices. They'd still be provided for, but they couldn't come uh, into uh, the presence and minister the sacrifice of that, which again put restrictions on the priests of how they, that they lived their lives and how careful they had to be because if they caught something like a skin disease, which would have been prevalent, there's a lot of stuff about that in the purity sections, actually they would then be disqualified from service. So their lives they lived was that there was a real care about that. If they got injured in a particular way, it could restrict them from ministry. So how they lived their life was huge. And all this stuff underlines again and again the holiness of God. The holiness of God. Because if you're going to be a minister, one of the priests in God's presence in the tabernacle, you have to recognize that he is holy and therefore you in return have to live a holy life. And as we read through our Bibles, we find again and again the, the Lord is described as holy. And we sometimes see in moments in the Bible where they get, someone gets a glimpse kind of into the heavenly realms, into the other realm, the realm that's beyond what we can see. And we see the angelic creatures around the, the throne. And what are they crying out? They're crying out, holy is the Lord. But they're not just crying, holy is the Lord. They're crying, holy, holy is the Lord, as if to underline and emphasize, but actually you realize they're not even crying that. What are they crying? They're crying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And he is the one who is the focus of worship. He is the one that, the, that has brought them out of slavery. He is the one who is leading them. And he is to be recognized as holy and set apart. And as a result, those who minister before him 
are to be set apart and holy in their lives. And so this encompasses the priest's personal life. And then we get on to the next section, chapter 22, which effectively is the priest's kind of ministry, what they do. So you've had the priest's life and the priest's ministry. And it begins with the attitude of heart because some of those things uh, that we read in the, the final chapter are kind of a, a much more outward things that you could kind of just, you could just do. If you're, you know, you're okay, you look after yourself, marry the right person, you don't go near the dead bodies, you could get away with doing your job. But actually, it's more than that. It has to be an attitude of heart behind it. We read that throughout the Bible where the Lord said, even Jesus said, doing the rituals is not enough. You have to have an attitude of worship behind it. Empty rituals don't cut it. There's got to be a heart of a worshiper there. And it begins this chapter where they, it says they are to abstain from holy things, which basically means other translations say they are to treat with respect or to be careful handlings. And what this is driving at is the, um, the old adage, which is so true, is that familiarity can breed contempt. And it can, can't it? If you keep doing stuff, you keep doing stuff, you kind of end up going through the motions. You can do that in work, you can do that in relationships, you can do it with your kids, you can do it in so many places. And the Lord here is trying to point out, if you're going to be my priests and you're going to minister in my tabernacle later the temple, it's the attitude of heart behind what you're doing that matters. You have to treat these things with respect. You have to be aware of what's going on and treat what is holy as holy. And if the priest failed to do that, they would then fail in their role in their ministry as priests. And it highlights three things in this section. It talks about unclean priests, unqualified guests, and unacceptable sacrifices. The first one, unclean priests. This is kind of about purity and about staying clean. And priests were responsible for their own actions to stay pure, to stay clean before the Lord. And there are multiple ways to become unclean. And Matt covered those in his sermon. And it was quite graphic and lovely, and I'm glad I didn't have to preach it. But Matt did a great job with doing that. And there was skin diseases and bodily discharge and touching unclean things. It was all very icky. There was lots of gushing and oozing and things like that. But the priests here, it's particularly applied to the priests and said, in light of that, that was for all the nation. Had to be aware of how you live, how you could approach, approach God. But the priests, it was like the, the, the notches went up. You've got to be extra careful because you are one of my chosen ministers among the people of God. And so you have to do that. And so the priests had to make sure that they were clean and be vigilant about how they lived their life, where they went. They had to be kind of, their, their senses had to be attuned to actually, is this going to make me richly unclean? Is what I'm doing and where I'm going and what I'm saying and who I'm hanging out with and all those things, are they going to have an effect on me so I cannot do my ministry for the Lord? And so the standards and the, it was ratcheted up a level and they had a responsibility before God and before the people to take that very, very seriously because we see in verse 9 there that actually failure to do that lacks attitude, contempt towards their role and their calling, what God had called them to, could actually lead to judgment. And there's an allusion there linking back to the previous section we looked at where what happened to Nadab and Abihu? They died because they just didn't take it seriously and they came into God's presence and there was that horrific judgment because they just they weren't taking their role seriously and they came into the presence of God in a sinful way unclean and boom that's what happened and so priests had to be qualified for their role they couldn't be unclean and carry on doing what they're doing the next thing 
was uh, the guests in their homes. This is very much dealing with their ministry in the home. Now, the priests, they didn't have a job as such in terms of tending flock or, or, or what we might call a kind of a work where they did something that they could use and trade for money or gives, whether it was growing something or making something. Their income came from the people who brought the sacrifices to the tabernacle so they could then eat. And that, that offering that was holy before the Lord, a portion of some of those offerings was given. Some was given to the worshiper, some was burnt and given to the Lord, and some was given to the priest who was ministering, who then could take that back to his family and feed them. And so part of the holy offering was given to the priests to go back and provide for them. So they had something to eat, otherwise they'd starve. But the, the, the laws that are put in, actually, that is a holy offering before the Lord. And the priest is allowed to eat it, and the priest's family is allowed to eat it, but no one else and so what they couldn't do is take the offering they'd received and their kind of their food portion and take it and then let any old person come in and eat it. It was actually still a holy offering. And how they lived their life in their home mattered. And who came and ate that um, was important to them. And they actually had to treat it as holy. It's even if they made a mistake and it said they had to make a restitution, which we've seen in other laws. So if you fail in this, you have to then pay it back plus a fifth. So it could become a very expensive meal if you made a mistake in it, underlying again how important it was to remain holy. And then the final one was the unacceptable sacrifices. And this was an area of great courage for the priests. Because as they were ministering the sacrifices and people were bringing their offerings, they had to examine them and they had to declare a judgment of whether that offering was acceptable by looking at the animal. If someone brought your, your sick, dodgy sheep that's limping, <coughs> a bit of a cough, we'll get rid of this one, we'll sacrifice this. The priest had to examine it and say, you've got a limping, coughing sheet with a bit of a, a rash on it. I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not accepting that sacrifice for the Lord because the Lord demands the best. So they had to have the courage to like, say to the worshiper, no, you can't bring that, which I can imagine would have caused some consternation among the worshippers when they're trying to bring this thing in. And that was how they were then to maintain the purity of worship for the people of God. And if we see through our Bibles, when they got this wrong, it went wrong for Israel. The prophets again and again rail against the priesthood who fail. Said, uh, you are offering sick animals, lame animals. You're not giving me your best. Your attitude is sloppy towards worship. The thermostat, if you will, had been turned right down. And as a result, the nation was suffering. And so the priests had to kind of set the thermostat, set the tone, say, actually, when it comes to worship, we're the ones who are calling it and making sure it's of the best standard of which God would bring to us. And so we get to the end of that section, and there's a sort of a summary bit that actually talks about that they are to honor the name of the Lord. They are not to pray... Um, they are not to profane it. And the foundation for this is their deliverance from Egypt. They were a saved people, a redeemed people. That was what's behind it. God said, I saved you. I called you out of Egypt. I brought you into um, the promised land that he promised to Abraham. And as a result of that, you are to live holy lives and you are to live set apart from me. And so in summary, the highest standard is placed on the spiritual leaders of God's people, those priests and their descendants who are meant to be held to the highest standards. And this, this covered all areas of life, from their marriage to their meals to their ministry, to even their body itself, on how they minister before the Lord. They were people to be people of humility and integrity. They were to set the thermosets, so to speak, for the people, so that they would worship the Lord faithfully, humbly. But they failed. 
They failed consistently. The story of Scripture is their continual failure before the Lord. Um, and as a result, the, the, the nation is punished and ultimately it's sent into exile. We saw as we looked at the story of Elijah where the nation was trending. It was trending down because of the failure of God's leaders in those places. But there's good news because that brings us back to Jesus. That brings us back to Jesus. And Jesus... When he came, he walked the earth. He fulfilled the role of the priesthood perfectly. He fulfilled it perfectly. He was the great high priest in regard to his personal life and his ministry. We looked at that particularly in the Day of Atonement. But in reference to this, he fulfilled the righteous requirements of the law and so was never unclean. He lived a clean life before the Lord. He never profaned the name of the Lord in terms of treating what was holy as unholy. He honored his father in, in heaven. His personal integrity meant he was gracious and kind to all who met him. He ferociously confronted sin in terms of false worship, in terms of hypocrisy, in terms of greed. We're reading Mark, Christmas to the cross, and there's the incident where he throws everyone out of the temple. Get out. Why? Because this place will be a house of prayer for all the nations. That's true worship. We're going to pray to God. We're going to pray for the nations that they would come to know that. That is who Jesus is. He remained humble throughout his life, submitting to the will of his Father. He never offered an unacceptable sacrifice. In fact, he was the perfect sacrifice, and he offered himself on the cross. He was a spotless lamb without blemish, and he died and paid for all sin that we might live, where generations of priests and high priests failed time and time again. Jesus perfectly completed his ministry when he died on the cross in our place for our sin, rose bodily from death, ascended into heaven, and now sits at the right hand of the Father. Which means for us that the priesthood in Leviticus as it stands no longer exists because it's been for fully fulfilled in Christ. We don't need a high priest who is a descendant of Aaron. And we don't need priests who are his sons and their descendants to minister for us because Jesus has been the great high priest. And he is the perfect spiritual leader for his people. And what does that mean for the priesthood in Leviticus? Well, it means that it's been transformed into something totally different. And so what does this mean for us? Well, the big one for us is that we are now a holy priesthood. We are now a holy priesthood. Let me read you a couple of verses from the New Testament that says this. He says, you, Peter, Jesus' friend, says, you, so Christians, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. A couple of verses later, he says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood. A holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you might proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So we, as followers of Jesus, as believers who are once outsiders, who are once separated from God, restricted by race, by respect, someone restricted by gender, by ethnicity, have now by faith been called into service of our Lord. We are all now priests in his priesthood. And because of Jesus, we are holy and clean permanently. We don't have to worry about the touching of the dead bodies and what we're eating. 
Because in Christ, we have been made clean. We have been made holy. We have been made righteous. We can stand before a holy God. We don't need to strive and earn for salvation. If I'm good, if I do this, if I watch that, if I don't do that, if I stay away from that, then God will accept me. No. We've already been accepted in Christ. We've already been proclaimed holy. We've already been fully entered in. And that's because Jesus has dealt with the problem of sin. He died as our sacrifice once for all. We no more have to think about, am I going to profane the name of the Lord? The, white, uh, the robes the priests wore were white because it represented holiness and purity. We have received them in Christ. We stand righteous and holy before. We don't have to wear a white robe because we are righteous and holy in him we can come into the sanctuary God's presence without dragging our feet we can boldly enter Hebrews tells us we can come before God and make our requests without worrying whether he's going to listen to we can run into his presence not just here on a Sunday but every day of the week anywhere we find ourselves we can call out to God so what does this mean for us now can I make some suggestions for you I'd love you to do this this week. I'd love you to set your thermostat. I'd love you to set your thermostat and let your life rise. Remind yourself daily that you are in Christ. If we read our New Testament, that is the most common phrase used for a believer, a follower of Jesus. We tend to use the word Christian, which is kind of, you flipped it around. But we can lose the meaning behind it. It means you are in Christ which means you are holy and righteous, which means you are part of a holy nation, a royal priesthood. You have been made acceptable to God. And so this week, try it. Every morning when you wake up, before you touch the little mind control device next to your bed, I am in Christ. I am one of his priests. I am part of that royal priesthood, that holy priesthood. I am acceptable to God. Every time you pick up that little technological addiction machine, say, God, I am in Christ. I am one of your priests. As you go through the day, every time you look in the mirror, some more than others, look gorgeous. Why? Because I'm in Christ. Because I'm in Christ. Set yourself up. Remind yourself who you are and then thank him for what he's done. Thank, think about Leviticus 21 and 22. And as you look through it, just go, Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, because I don't have to. You've done it. I don't need to. You've done it. Thank you, thank you, Lord. If you're not a believer here today and not a Christian, we love you. We're glad you're here. We want you to come and know Jesus for yourself. We want you to come and be part of this great priesthood that we are all involved in and many others, millions around the world, lovers of Jesus. So please come talk to us what it means to be Forgiven for your sin, it means to be in Christ. It means to have a new life, a new beginning, a new creation. To have all that guilt and shame dealt with. So we are a holy priesthood. That is good news. Number two, we are to live holy lives. We are to live holy lives. As a result of what Jesus has done, the responsibility still remains that we are to live in the light of it. We are still to live out of who we are, not to earn anything, but in response to what God did. When God spoke to the people of Israel, the foundation of his law, the foundation of his commands was, I'm the God who rescued you. So you're already rescued, you're already free. 
They were out of Egypt. I've taken you. I've saved you. You couldn't save yourself. You were lost and you were slaves. I came. I saved you. I've brought you out, brought you into a promised land. I've provided. I've blessed you. And now in response to that, live a holy life. We are to no longer bring animals as sacrifices, as an act of worship. You didn't all turn up with your sheep this morning. That would have been entertaining. Everyone brought, a lamb, brought the lamb in. It would have been a lot louder and a lot smellier. We're actually told we're to bring another type of sacrifice. What's the new type of sacrifice? Romans 12.1 says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your... In mine says bodies, but yes, we'll go with self. Present your body, present you as a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable to God, which is your spiritual act of worship. So as priests, as a priesthood, we are still to offer a sacrifice. It's us. <laughs> Bring yourself to the altar. You know, that's what you're to do. We are to offer ourselves as a, a sacrifice. And like the priests, this covers all areas of our lives. Not just a bit of it. If you bring yourself, that's everything. It's not just one bit of it. You bring, well, I'll bring my Sunday morning, 10.30 or 12.30. That's it. No, no. This is all of it. Every area of your life. And as priests, we are all spiritual leaders in some form or another. We all have a responsibility to live that out. We are all to set the thermostat for our own lives on how we live, and that will then affect whatever is around us. We are all responsible for leading something. First of all, you're responsible for leading yourself. There's no get out of jail. Well, I haven't got, I can't, I'm not in charge of you. You're in charge of you. So that's where it begins. You are to lead your own life. And just so you know, that's the hardest thing on earth to lead yourself. Because guess what? You just love to go and do other things. You are love, your body just, you're, you're prone to temptations and, and distractions. And so leading ourselves can be so tough. We're to lead ourselves in relation to God, how we read our Bible, how we pray, what we do with our finances, what we say yes to, what we say no to, what we watch, what we don't watch, who we interact with, how we interact with them. That is our responsibility to lead. And the question comes now, the searching question is, how are you setting the thermostat for your life in what you're doing? Are there areas of your life where, the, frankly, the thermostat is turned way down? It can't go anymore. It's like it's at the bottom. Are there things you need to look at? Are there places where you need to turn it up? We lead our families. If, you have, if you're married in any way or you have children or grandchildren or others around you, we are to lead them before God. We are to lead them in loving God. We are to lead them towards the worship of God. If you have responsibility, particularly for children or even a spouse, do you lead them towards God with your life? Do you lead them towards the family of God with your life? Is your heart, your attitude saying, that is where I'm going, that's where my thermostat is set. I will lead them towards God and his family and his people because that's what we're a part of. This great priesthood. Because that's what we're to doing. And if you're uh, someone here going, I don't know how to do that. Well, let's give you some advice. First one, come to church every Sunday. That's a great one. Particularly men. Where are you leading your family? Lead them here to the worship of God, to be here. I've been doing this so long. And one of the things that always makes me want to weep is when I look around and I see families here. And the man isn't here, but he should be. 
He knows better, but he's off doing DIY or a hobby or something. You're like, what? Why aren't you leading your family to worship? Lead your kids. Lead your kids here. This is a great place. We've got some of the best kids' work of any church I've ever been in. Lead your family. Talk well about it. When you're at home, lead your kids in terms of reading their Bibles and prayers and forgiving one another and just bringing it into kind of daily life. We try so hard. It's a battle every single night. We have scrum down fight when it comes to, let's read the Bible. It's like me, it's like me saying, hate your brother. That's, that's, just, that's what I, they hear when I say that. Punch your brother. Listen to, ignore me, disobey me when I say, let's open the Bible. It's, just, it's a fight every night, but we, we persevere. We keep going, and we see success sometimes, and the rest, we just repent afterwards. <laughs> when, we've got through, when we've got through it. But we, we're fighting about to lead our kids towards God, lead our kids towards church, lead one another towards those things. What about if you're in a workplace? You set the tone there with what you bring in terms of how you deal with your colleagues, with your clients, with your customers, with your students, with your pupils, whoever you're going around it. Are you leading them towards God and his kingdom by how you're acting? We looked at last week, particularly it was the love your neighbor as yourself in a response to God's holiness. How are we doing it in those situations? Are we being a loving, gracious servant? What about in terms of, in, in terms of church? And just some of you have responsibility in what we're doing here. Are you leading people, pointing people in serving, in forgiving? And what about if you aspire to church leadership in any form, <laughs> said the church leader? The highest standard is expected of you. We read the New Testament and the standards for those leaders in God's church is just higher than everyone else's. And I'm acutely aware of that as I preach this in terms of our character, in terms of our family, in terms of our finances. And so if you're in church leadership, in any form of leadership in church, you, there is a responsibility to live your life honoring to God. Because the number one thing the New Testament uh, goes after is our character and how we live. Not so much what we do, but who we are. And we are to respond to God's grace and live in holiness before him. And so we as God's people, God's priests, we are to live holy lives. We've been made holy in Christ. We are already there. Effectively, you've crossed the finish line. You're one by God's grace. And now we live in response to that. And we live in the goodness and the grace and the mercy of that. And so as we read the book of Leviticus and we turn after page after page, all I can find my saying is, thank you, Jesus. <laughs> thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Give me grace to live this out for your glory. Amen? Amen. Do you want to stand up? Do you want to stand up? Band, do you want to come back up? I'm just going to pray for us. And then we're going to worship the Lord. We're going to respond. And we're going to offer our bodies as living sacrifices. Holy to him. Maybe you want to close your eyes, open your hands. Let's start with truth. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are sovereign God, ruling over all things. We thank you that you are the great high priest who perfectly fulfilled the priesthood in every way. You were the perfect sacrifice, the spotless, unblemished lamb, and you died in our place for our sin. You dealt with sin once for all time. And because we are in you by faith, we are declared not guilty. We are declared holy. We are declared righteous before you. That is good news. 
And we thank you for that, Lord. We thank you that it's not dependent on ourselves and it never will be. Lord God, but we pray now by your spirit, fill us that we may live in response to that. That we may live holy lives as your holy priesthood. That we may go out into the world and minister to our fellow man and woman and child and show them your love and your grace and your mercy. Lord God, would you refine us? Would you shape us that we would become more and more like you? That in our own personal lives, in our family lives, in our work lives, in our, with our neighbors and our friends and our social group, how we act online and what we type Lord God, that it would be honoring to you. Lord, that we would live in a response to who you are. And like the priests we read about in the Old Testament, God, would we live lives of honesty and integrity and purity before you, Lord Jesus. And Lord God, even when we fail, and we know we fail, we fail every day, Lord God, will we come back to the truth that you have won. You've dealt with sin and we are in you. And would you give us grace to go again? And some of you have already had a rough week. You've had a rough morning. You know that, oh man, messed that up, didn't do that right. Let's, let's start again. God's grace is here. He's forgiven you. You're in Christ. Let's worship him. Let's cry out to him. Let's honor him for who he is. Ask him to fill us, shape us, lead us into this new week for his glory. And God's people said, amen, amen.